Welcome to Making Waves, a program about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art for WGXC Wayfarm. Good morning, this is the first thing. And in this half hour... Now. Now, this morning, yes. The National Research Council official time signal. The beginning of the long dash following 10 seconds of silence. You were just listening to an excerpt from No Time for Silence by Victoria Fenner. This is the World Listening Day edition of Making Waves. No Time for Silence is a radio work that Victoria Fenner made for the CBC in 2000. We're playing it because recently uh, it's been reworked into an audiovisual work created in collaboration with Stefan Rose. And that new work is called Seeing Sound, and it consists of three of Victoria Fenner's uh, radio and sound art works from uh, the early 2000s, and uh, they've been combined with a video kind of score uh, that that works with it. And these will be shared on July 21st on a World Listening Day concert and screening at the Nason North Media Arts Centre, which also includes a piece by... Claude Schreier, in which he's also um, bringing sound into an audiovisual realm through his Simple Soundscapes blog. We'll be talking to Victoria Fenner and Stefan Rose in the first hour. We'll be talking about their collaborative process and uh, some of the insight into the decision-making that went into the piece. In the second half hour of Making Waves, we will celebrate World Listening Day by going on a walk with uh, South River nature recordist Glenn Hubert. We'll learn how he records wolf howls on his property, which is about 30 kilometers west of the nearest paved road. World Listening Day occurs uh, on July 18th every year, and it is an occasion for anyone and anywhere to go on a sound walk and discover the sounds that often go unnoticed from one day to the next. Visit worldlisteningproject.org for more details on how you can uh, arrange uh, a sound walk and uh, share it with the rest of the world. Now we'll go to my interview with Victoria Fenner and Stefan Rose. And uh, over the course of that interview, we'll listen to more of the pieces from the trilogy, which are The Queen of Bees and Looking for Light. It's, I've been doing sound works and, and sound art, specifically radio art, uh, for oh, probably over 20 years or so. And I've had people sometimes ask me, uh, but what do we look at when we're listening to your pieces? And the thing is, it's funny because like I've done sound festivals with you, Darren. I've uh, had my works played on radio. And people who are really used to listening to sound on its own this isn't a barrier for them, that there is nothing that, that for them to see. 
But for a lot of the a lot of people, then it's really quite a foreign concept to listen to something without having something to look at. And so I got thinking about it and I thought, well, what could I do to create an experience that was more inclusive for those people who don't are just not accustomed to listening to anything except perhaps music in the background. And so that's what I decided to do was uh, put together a project called Seeing Sound, which uh, addresses the question or attempts to, to address the question anyway about how can we combine visuals and sound in a way where the visuals complement the sound and don't dominate the sound. I think that's been one of my uh, one of my hesitations about working with video in the past is that the the image is frequently really overpowering because we are a visual culture. And so how do I then create a sound work that is the sound where the sound is the thing and the visuals is like the supporting cast in a way. And it's a very different approach for most of the video artists and video producer friends who I have. Usually they start with the image and then they add the sound. We did it the other way. We started with the sound and then with Stefan, the uh, visuals were added. Right. So, Stefan, uh, you've done stuff, videos to other music that's been made before. So you've worked this way of uh, working with visuals to sound um, that wasn't new to you uh, in your collaborations with the Penderecki Quartet and others. How was this experience different? Well, the it was interesting for me in working with, uh, uh, with these pieces that they weren't all that, in some ways, weren't dissimilar from some of the works that I've uh, created visuals to with the, uh, for instance, with the Pandoreski String Quartet, because um, some of their pieces, like um, uh, uh, Different Trains, was one that includes repetition of text that has been spoken um, in different ways. And so having pieces to work with that had audio of people speaking was was not a real challenge. The real challenge was to uh, find the, uh, the conceptual framework for translating these uh, audio pieces, which ranged in style from being very documentary in approach to abstracted uh, kind of audio landscape, I mean, abstracted from landscape and abstracted audio uh, from you know various sources. So it was, uh, the pieces were a little bit uh, more of a challenge because of less uh, uh, sort of rhythm or, um, I'm not quite sure, I mean, there was less melody to sort of play off, you know, what kinds of things, you know, get repeated when or, you know, how to, to create something conceptually that would go with the, with the audio. I mean, a piece like Different Trains, for instance, is, uh, you know, had been... Uh, relating to uh, the sound of trains and their function, you know, at different times during the war. But, you know, with with a piece like uh, Looking for Light, where it's got, you know, very subtle sounds from the landscape, you know, how do you take some of those things and, and then create a, a visual framework around that? Victoria mentioned she wanted the audio and video to be on some kind of equal footing. So how did both of you achieve that? 
what was interesting for me was when uh, Stefan was talking about the pieces, you know, all being very different. I think that was a big challenge for Stefan. It was also a challenge for me trying to pick out which three of the some pieces that I've done over the past uh, uh, 30 years or so, which one. And so I very deliberately choose. So the first one, uh, No Time for Silence, which is one of the first pieces I ever did, is um, very much, it's probably the one that uh, could be described as, I think, um, when we were up visiting you, um, Darren, when we were putting it together, then uh, Nadine, the uh, managing director of, of NASA, she had said that it was like illustrated radio. And in a way it was. And it's like I've often been uh, uh, been I, I puzzled about in this new digital age where we're adding images to everything, how we can make radio visual. So that was very much a radio piece. The second one, The Queen of Bees, was inspired by a piece, uh, by, by a line of poetry by London composer uh, Penn Kemp. And it, uh, is, it starts with, The Queen of Bees had myriads to please. And it was a lovely line. And what we did was, it was a workshop where I was, um, uh, we were exploring how to turn poetry into sound art in uh, London, Ontario in 2003. I didn't do the piece until about 2005. So it was, you know, it's, it's an older piece, but uh, um, I let the sound sort of gel before I composed it. But what it is, is, is a dark fantasy, which is made up of um, some very unusual sounds, but trying to evoke the sound of a hive. And it isn't really, the piece isn't really about a hive. It's using the bees as the metaphor um, exploring social organization and hierarchy and who has power and who doesn't have power, who wants it, how do they get it. So there are a lot of words in it, but there's a lot of uh, sounds that are not really some traditional buzzing, as you'll hear, but we went beyond that and kind of imagined what bees sort of would have sounded like if we were to hear micro sounds, you know, that kind of thing. So, but it's very, very much a conceptual kind of piece exploring a central question and that and what is power and uh, so the, the third one looking for light which Stefan referred to was um, an interior journey and a very very dark time and I was exploring how do you get through that darkness and break into the light so these were ideas that went beyond just sort of the mere sounds it's like I sometimes refer to my um to my works as um, documentary poetry because they do have real life elements and real life sounds, but yet it's a poem. So I would imagine for someone who is trying to convey those kinds of concepts by sound, then it would have been quite a challenge. And Stefan and I uh, had conversations every time we got together, which I recorded about what we were thinking about the pieces, what the process is going to be, and and just where our own artistic processes were going with each one. So it was really, really a marvelous collaboration, and I'm just really thrilled with the results. And looking for light, 
the difficulty with with the piece was both the the subtlety of the sound, but then also um, conceptually about you know what is looking for light, you know, and and Victoria gave some good uh, descriptions of what were the influences on her work. But then for me to translate that into visuals, I spent a lot of time puzzling over how will I take imagery that you know, looks towards the light or that is being things that are influenced by light because um, in my other realm outside of making video pieces, I'm also a photographer. And so, you know, that uh, drawing with light is integral to my process. So, you know, was it going to be a, a photographic kind of uh, based process of uh, video imagery or was it going to be something else? And I had initially started thinking about uh, flowers because or plants because they're always looking for light and you know going up towards the light you know even turning you know some of them turning with the light through the day and uh, I was thinking okay how can I take these flowers you know so it's not just like macro photography and then how do I you know what what is it about these things so I started building up a vocabulary of uh, images that I was shooting of different plants at different seasons in different light and uh, and then eventually I had so much stuff and uh, started sifting through and finding the the idea of it or revealed itself to me I would say um, as I was looking through the footage and then there were those surprises of oh I've got so many insects on so many of these plants you know that I hadn't really been paying very close attention to because I was interested in the edge effects of plants and leaves and flowers and you know thinking about something dangerous about you know a sharp what looks like a sharp edge very up close so it was an it was an interesting process over over the two-year span that we had our conversations and we were shooting and and then coming up with you know what fits together in the final assessment and uh, one thing that was really, really interesting for me, uh, the process, what I decided at the very beginning after our first conversation was I wanted to do one piece, which is No Time for Silence. I wanted to do that myself because another goal of the uh, of the project was to uh, start to do some of my own shooting and some of my own basic editing so that then I could do a lot of work on my own. So I No Time for Silence was one that I did on my own. I decided with, with Stefan, it's like I thought, well, Stefan really needs a place where he can shine too, where he's not collaborating with me. So what he did was he did Looking for Light entirely on his own, showing me what he was coming up with. We talked about the concepts and everything like that. But other than that, I was very hands-off. Uh, the um, third one, The Queen of Bees, was the one where we really put our brains together. And I would say that was the one that was the um, the the true collaboration between us. And uh, the difficulty with The Queen of Bees is that, whereas Looking for Light is probably about the most musical piece that I've ever done, and No Time for Silence is very much like sort of... I, don't want to say documentary but it does have documentary elements the queen of bees is kind of like a radio play in a lot of ways except that it's a radio play that has a very very loose narrative and i thought how on earth are we going to do this because i don't want to do it with 
your stereotypical images of beehives and things like that, and bees buzzing around the garden and everything. The queen of bees had myriads to please. You know, because the more bees, the stronger the hive is. They do everything. <laughs> feed the drones, feed the <laughs> queen, uh, make the comb, gather the honey. There's a lot of traffic going in and out of there. Yeah. If they couldn't get out, they would be having problems in the hive. Come on, come on. Come here, little bee, come here. <laughs> it was a collaboration, not just between Stefan and I, but also my partner, Edward Mull, who has a really, really good visual imagination as well, we were talking about it at home and he said, well, why don't you do it as like, um, kind of like Indonesian shadow puppets and you could have like the bees except, you know, you can only see the shadow of a bee and so and it won't really look like a bee. But it, so it, he really, what he did was he took the ideas that we talked about and he created these bees that were like, they, they don't look like bees, but we played with them so that you could tell they were flying around like bees. And uh, they were made of date pits with bamboo skewers like you would get satay on in a Thai restaurant. And he created a platform and we just experimented with the motion and we took different bees and we flew them around in combinations of one or two or sometimes whole flocks of bees. And Stefan came over and we actually rigged up a scrim in the studio with a nice piece of fabric over it. And we just did bee puppet. <laughs> it was really, really crazy and fun. And that was the one where I think that it probably is a, is it's a big departure from, from photography. And, uh, it, it, it's the one I think that we probably had to stretch the most on and the collaboration between the three of us, Stefan, Edward and I really, really yield some interesting results. I don't know, Stefan, if you have anything you'd like to add to that. I don't know what it was like for you. <laughs> well, it was, it was definitely a lot of fun. And for me, the, uh, the great joy about putting together that piece was because there was, um, the element of play to the collaboration. There was the sense that um, we could, you know, we didn't have boundaries, but also what was, what I felt was important about uh, the piece being very abstracted with these, you know, this shadow puppet play was that it created a real abstraction from the very strong audio uh, documentary type of piece that it has components of. So the interviews with the beekeepers talking about the role of the queen and the other bees in the hive and the interactions between, you know, that's, it's a very concrete description. 
And then you've got the poetic play of uh, Penn Kemp's words and, and then the abstracted sounds of the bees uh, imagined by the, the audio workshop participants. And, and then to take the visuals and instead of it being literal, taking it to an abstracted layer that allows the audio to really strongly come through, but still keep some visual interest. Yeah, and uh, I, I found of all of the pieces, that one was the most challenging because it was story-based and not, and yet not story-based. It's sort of like, oh, and then the first the bees did this, and then they did that, and then they did this. It's like, that's one of the challenges with the style of art that I do, I think, is that I am so firmly rooted in narrative, you know, coming from current affairs and radio drama and documentary and music too, but it's like primarily the spoken word arts. It was really, really a challenge to break through that and try to not portray what was happening in a very, very linear kind of way. And I've got to share one of my favorite stories, though, from doing this one. This is really very funny. In uh, talking about what my journey has been in terms of using my eyes and how this process has really, really woken up that sense um, in, in my, you know, of myself has really, really been wonderful. And I used to kind of joke around that the only reason why I had eyes was so that I didn't bump into posts while I was doing a sound walk. <laughs> so anyway, so it's sort of like to say I haven't used my eyes uh, to their full capacity is probably an understatement. But at one point I had put this, uh, Ed had made the, the scrim to do the shadow puppets on and I'd just done some um, some test videos and I sent them to Stefan and Stefan got back to me and said, yeah, I like the texture of the backdrop that you're using, but could you iron it first so there's not a big wrinkle down the middle? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's, uh, well, that's the, the great thing about collaborating with somebody who has practice in area when you're exploring a new place is there's... Um, Things they recognize, or will you know, certain attentions to detail that you know that you might take for granted. Are there ways, Stefan, that this project has stretched your audio perception as a visual artist and also as a writer? I'm not sure that it has really stretched my perceptions uh, so much as it's uh, reaffirmed my love of audio in all forms. Um, because, as you've noted before, I've uh, I've done collaborations with other musicians, and uh, I've all, I have a deep love of radio, and um, and you know as a poet as well, I you know like the way that Victoria has crafted these pieces. So you know the Queen of Bees has those poetic elements to it from Penn Kemp's vocalizations and, and uh, spoken words to the, what I perceive as the flow of the audio piece. I mean, audio has been one of those things that I, I've always been fascinated by, but uh, somewhat intimidated by because uh, I know people, I mean, Darren, I've, I've known your work for a long time and the fact that you can pick out uh, some sort of frequency that's, uh, you know, bothersome in a piece of audio. You can pick that out in an instant. And I'm like, uh, I don't hear anything. What? <laughs> um, so, but working on, on this project, 
and uh, getting a better sense of some of the poetic qualities in, in Victoria's editing has, uh, I would say, that's perhaps been uh, giving me some confidence that maybe I can start making a transition to, you know, doing some of my own audio pieces as well as video. And then that's funny because it's like I am the opposite way. When I first started this, I mean, I've worked a, I've worked in television a bit. I've worked, you know, for video companies a bit, but mostly I've been at home in audio. And so for me, this has been a great confidence builder and it's given me an opportunity to try some new ideas and also to work with Stefan um, and being able to ask questions about you know, either why does that shot not look good? You know, and like he's able to say it doesn't look, you know, it could be better if you did this. And all the way from technical formats, you know, it's like what are the different codecs to save it in? It's like it's, for audio, there aren't quite as so many, there isn't as wide a range of different choices as far as uh, the final encoding of the, uh, of the works. And the reason why I wanted to work with Stefan as well is because Stefan has been involved with New Adventures in Sound Art since 2001, is it Stefan? Uh, actually, since 2000. Well, there you go. And so he's the official documenter for New Adventures in Sound Art. And there aren't a lot of video people who I would work with on this because I find that, I don't know, it's the, the, the pictures always come first to so many video people who I know. And um, just, I don't, they don't intend for it to dominate, but it's like, I, I do think that there are many video artists who would really have a hard time under, you know, like really, really getting into the sound and really understanding that it is the sound that needs to drive their images and not the other way around. One thing I was very, very happy with is um, I didn't think this would happen and I'm really glad that it didn't, but I think there are some video artists who, if I had worked with, they would have asked me to change some of the sounds because they would have, they, they might've found images that would have gone better with different sounds. And Stefan never asked me to change a bit. Certainly for me, uh, respecting the, the artistic integrity of the piece that I'm working with has been one of the, uh, the foremost things about my working process. So with previous collaborations, the pieces have been composed by, you know, quite well, uh, well-known composers and they are in some ways fixed in in the way that they've been developed because they're designed for you know, a concert environment. But also I think from my experience of documenting concerts for New Adventures in Sound Art or for uh, Open Ears Festival of Music and Sound or, or numerous new music concerts, whenever I'm documenting that's been video as well as still images, um, I've had to develop a deep respect and consideration for the performers as they're doing their concerts, because to you know get up into their face with a video camera or you know have that clicking shutter sound of the camera, a still camera, um, right in their face is going to distract them from what the end product is. So I I've learned and developed a very respectful distance and care with how I document things, and I think that comes over into you know doing these kinds of collaborations with audio pieces that are carefully crafted in a studio setting or you know carefully crafted right from the recording 
of the participants through to you know the production in the studio to create the piece so you know i i wasn't going to meddle in what that audio piece was going to be that was victoria fenner and stefan rose in conversation with me uh talking about their work seeing sound which will be shown at nasa in south river on july 21st for the remainder of the program we're going to go on a walk with local nature sound recorders glenn hubert he has a property about 30 kilometers west of uh, south river it has a beaver pond nestled in a small forested valley and it's the site of many wolf recordings that he's made in recent years we went to the pond in hopes of hearing some wolves and in the process he shared his insight and passion for living and recording in the central Ontario wilderness. So what, what we're walking on here is actually an animal trail uh, mm. that comes up and down from the pond up past the cabin. And uh, so it's kind of marked out the area for us. It's all pristine land here. And, So you're pointing to uh, bear? No, that that's a bear scat. Bear scat there? Yeah, yeah, it's several days old. What we'll do is we'll we'll approach the pond fairly quietly, just in Mm -hmm. case. Yeah, you never know. There might be a moose or something down there. Yeah. sign of Mr. or Mrs. Moose at the moment, but very serene and quiet down here. This is all untouched, pristine wetland. This is the beaver pond. And they made this this dam here that we're about to walk on. We'll catch a sign of Mr. Chucky the beaver today. What is his habits as far as time goes, like morning, evening, afternoon? Um, I think it. Uh, I think it depends on the on the time of year. We um, we've seen him down here, especially early in the morning, working away. And then it seems like as the day wears on, we see less of him. And now mm. I don't see any sign of him. Uh, um, 
I'm, I'm not sure where his den is. I think his den is actually further down the wetland here. Oh, okay. As opposed to right here. Mm -hmm. um, the water is lower than it normally is. You hear some wood snaps over there? He's, uh, he's very skittish. He's not used to people being around at all, so. We were down here yesterday and, and he did a couple of slaps with his tail and then we didn't see him anymore. So are the wolves attracted to the pond area if they yes. come down for a drink of water and yeah, stuff? Yeah, they, they actually um, use this beaver dam that goes this is the only the main spot that will cross uh the whole wetland you know without getting waist deep in water and mm -hmm. um especially you know in the spring and, and early summer like now and uh, so the wolves and the bear and the moose will use this dam as their path you know so uh the wolves also um in in years when uh the deer aren't as plentiful a lot of the deer go up to the uh the nearby deer yard just north of us here. In those times when uh, the wolves are here but the deer have moved on, um, they will actually uh, stalk the beaver. They'll, uh -huh. they'll, they'll hunt the beaver. Wow. And uh, yeah, and actually, uh, from what I understand, even the bear will uh, resort if they need to, uh, tearing a beaver dam apart to get, the, to get at the den, you know. And uh, so, um, but the wolves, yes, they they uh, they come all through here, and I've I've heard them uh, and recorded them many times. All I, I I'm pretty sure it's just all been on the far on the far shore that I've heard them. Not you know they haven't come right directly right at the cabin site, uh, you know where I I haven't recorded them there. But uh, I've had my microphones at the cabin recording and picked them up from here. And the ambience is just amazing, you know, because of the openness and, and whatnot. Okay. From the perspective of the cabin up the hill, you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. When I record, um, I never bait. Um, I don't believe in it. I don't think it's ethical. Same thing, you know, for photographers, you know, just in order to get that close-up shot. Um, you know, you hear photographers and, and uh, naturalists, or not naturalists, but you hear of photographers sometimes, you know, baiting owls and that kind of a thing. And, and uh, of course, the owl becomes habituated to getting that morsel of food and, and a mm -hmm. treat. And, and then next thing you know, uh, you know, uh, it gets hit by a car, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's to the detriment of nature. So um, I have a motto and I like to live by it. Um, nature should be appreciated, shared, and respected. It should be preserved, cared for, and protected for future generations. Mm -hmm. And if we can abide by that, appreciate it, we'll want to learn about it, we'll respect it, and then preserve and protect it. You have the luxury of being here every day, so yes. you get to uh, respond to it, uh, which um, a lot of uh, nature 
record us or sometimes often uh, kind of tourists that only pop into that place for yeah, weekend recordists. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or whatever, yeah. That kind of a thing. Or they yeah. keep moving to different places yeah, as right. opposed and to being immersed in exactly. one place. And that's what that's what I have done for basically the past decade, uh, doing exactly that. Um, moving from location to location, seeking out different environments and habitats. And uh, it's been very rewarding. Uh, it's also very time consuming, um, but very rewarding. Um, and when we purchased this property, 40 acres, with the lay of the land um, and the pond feature and wetland, um, that was a, a major attraction, a major feature. Uh, and having the, the maple trees up on the ridge, the hardwood maples, and uh, you know, all the coniferous and, and deciduous trees uh, just provides those different habitats. And uh, you hear the frogs croaking and and uh, down here at the pond and, and so you have all that habitat and uh, there's a cedar grove towards the front of our property which again is a little different you know so uh, uh, a big you know diverse diverse piece of property and uh, lots of sounds and and uh, it's really neat to you know you, we don't have loons on the pond but when you hear the Canada geese coming in in the spring and you know heralding heralding spring after a long winter you know it certainly is a welcoming sound so with with the wolves being in the area um, to my knowledge and and best of my my ability to discern um, I think there's about three packs of wolves that frequent the area and from what I understand they have uh, you know about a 200 kilometer range and uh, circle that they they can do like a routine and it may take them a week or so to, to a week or two even to get back around, you know, to, to square one again type of a thing. Hmm. What I have found is that uh, when I do hear them call, um, they usually are in the same location for a couple nights. That's my experience, um, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, I may hear them the very first night. And um, so the second night I'll set the mics out and uh, you know if we're fortunate then we'll we'll get something it's similar to fishing right mm -hmm. you, you got to have your line in the water in order to catch the fish and and just because you're you're on a certain lake doesn't mean you're gonna get the big one right some days you get nothing right so and it depends on the conditions right the fish don't always bite when it's uh, real hot and sunny they might like it during a rainy day that kind of thing so uh, you know, same with the same with the other wildlife like wolves and, and the do wolves do they howl more or less in certain weather conditions or, or um, is it more seasonal related to their? Uh, I I actually um, think that they don't howl as much or as often when it's uh, windy and rainy. Um, and I have had the mics out during those times and. Uh, very rarely have I had the occasion to be able to record them during like a windstorm or, you know, a rainstorm, that kind of a thing, uh, which is kind of interesting. Now, I would, I would think that perhaps that's because they're, uh, they know their sound doesn't carry as much when, when the wind's going through the leaves of the trees and there's so much background noise that, you know, their partners uh, back at the rendezvous point may not hear them because the sound just doesn't carry as often. Um, mm -hmm. 
Uh, and it's also is it that they may not be hunting during those times? It's possible, yeah, mm-hmm. that's possible. That or is it, could, I mean, is it always connected to hunting, or um, uh, it, you it, say? Or? It, it could be because mm-hmm. uh, usually when the you know you have rainy season, uh, rainy times, um, certain days where it's extremely windy and rainy, um, game and uh, whatnot may not be. Uh, uh, out and about doing their regular, you know, their regular things. So, uh, you know, if they're they're all in their dens and hiding and, and keeping uh, uh, sheltered, then uh, there's just not as much opportunity. Um, and that's just a hunch, you know. It's uh, uh, maybe a, perhaps a, a wildlife biologist would would uh, know more. But uh, that's just my hunch at this point. I do find that when it is a calm, clear night, I've had much more success with recording the wolves. And that's conducive to the recording too, right? Because there's not as much background noise and, and the ambience and echoes and reverberation is that much uh, better when it's a nice, calm, still night. Like right mm. now, you can see the pond is almost like glass and uh, very protected down here from the wind and so forth. You're also protected from... Uh, any kind of car noise from Eagle Lake Road, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. No, or or Rye Road. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the other reasons why mm-hmm. we chose this property is, you know, we're we're so far, uh, you know, we're about, what, 20 miles away from any paved road mm-hmm. and uh, uh, no train rumble, uh, you know, with the recording. Uh, low-end frequencies are often a problem. And uh, personally, I don't like to have to filter out those low frequencies. I, I like... I'm. I guess I'm a purist from that standpoint. I like to capture the sound as it is without uh, or with very little doctoring and processing, uh, you know, in in, uh, post-production. So um, if I try to, I try to choose uh, the time and the place, the type of ambience that I'm after. um, And sometimes it's hit and miss. But uh, I may go to the same location several times. Uh, and then when I, I finally do hear a wolf howl, for instance, um, I can judge what the ambience is like. And, and uh, often the wolves will be in the same location another time. So, because, uh, you know, they're creatures of habit and uh, they may find a, a certain location. For instance, in June, the pups are growing. So mama takes the pups into the edge of a field, uh, on, on the edge of a forest, and, uh, and uh, the alpha wolf with its, um, I don't know if it's just younger, you know, male uh, um, counterparts in the, in the team will go out on the hunt, leaving mama and the, and the, uh, and the uh, wolf cubs uh, back at the rendezvous point. Um, and that established rendezvous point will become uh, often the place that is good to pick up on the wolves um, because uh, mama stays you know in that same spot for the two or three nights that they're there before they move on mm-hmm. right so they uh, i've noticed that around sunset uh, just around this time maybe a little bit later uh, in the evening as the sun is setting they will howl and I don't know if that is a call that, hey, we're going out on the hunt now. <laughs> we'll see you later, kind of a thing. Um, but usually around this time, you, you might hear them. And then uh, maybe around 3 or even 4 a.m., you'll hear them again. And often what I've noticed is that the alpha wolf, as he approaches that rendezvous point, 
uh, maybe a quarter mile away from it, he will give out, um, and I've noticed this quite a few times, the alpha will give out a single bark and then a howl and then wait and then he'll give out another howl if he doesn't hear an answer back. He'll give out another howl which is even more intense and a little more higher pitched. And then you'll hear mama usually uh, answering back. And then, then the uh, younger uh, males that are in the hunting party will join in with the alpha. And then all the pups and whatnot will join in with mama. And uh, next thing you know, as as the uh, as uh, the group uh, the, uh, the hunting party with the alpha comes closer towards the uh the the rest of the pack it gets more intense as they go and i, I think it's just a greeting hey we're here mm -hmm. right we're back right so right. and it becomes a real a real family reunion quite a cacophony of sounds um and the other thing that i've noticed too is that a lot of those sounds um like a, a single wolf can can have th three or even four types of calls and they mm -hmm. will do one after the other yipping and yelping and then a howl and a yip and a yelp and, and all these different sounds so one wolf can sound like four so uh, a, a pack interchanging of yeah. yeah a pack of 12 mm. is gonna you know could sound like 48 wolves right it's, mm. and it's like wow it really sounds like that's a huge pack right? yeah yeah mm -hmm. and if you can't see them you, yeah. You, uh, yeah yeah so it leaves a lot to your imagination right? yeah. and one of the things that i have done on the as i look back at the at the uh, wave forms of the recordings when I uh, when I hear the alpha wolf, um, it'll almost have its own signature, and, which is different from, uh, for instance, uh, you know the the main female of the pack. And um, I was fortunate enough in past years where we were living, uh, which was on the edge of a, a farmer's field and the edge of a forest, and the pack would uh, continually for for about three years, four years, uh, visit, uh, you know, every two weeks or so for a couple nights. And um, so I got very accustomed to the sounds of that pack, the sound of the alpha wolf. And um, when suddenly uh, there was uh, one occasion where he didn't call anymore and there was a new call that uh, replaced him and uh, a much higher pitch to just didn't sound like the alpha anymore and i have a feeling the alpha um, either he met his demise either from old age because he was a big brute he was very very uh, very husky and uh, i did i did see him in, in the field and uh, he had a very deep voice and uh, suddenly he was replaced with a much younger sounding uh, wolf that uh, either drove him off or perhaps the wolf was shot uh, mm -hmm. the alpha you know which mm -hmm. happens you know so so often uh, especially when you're in farm country mm -hmm. but that was uh, that was very interesting to note the you know the changes in the pack over those years and and uh, how many of the calls the signatures uh, I could recognize and uh, I got so accustomed to hearing that male alpha wolf that when he was gone uh, I noticed it you know so how, how often do you see the wolves and visually like is it um, do they keep their distance and and you you hear more than you see very much so they are so elusive they they i would say 99 percent of the time they know you're there before you know they're there mm -hmm. uh, they're very well aware with their hearing and sense of smell what's going on in the area and um I have had occasion where I've had up close and personal encounters uh, a couple of times um, and I felt very privileged and honored 
uh, to be able to witness that. Uh, one day I was, it was uh, just about pre-dawn, it was probably 4.30 in the morning, and it was uh, early July, and um, I wanted to record the babbling of some streams. So I headed out into the into the uh, back roads, parked uh, the vehicle, and I walked about a half a kilometer, and uh, I followed this little creek um, through the, you know, winding through the, the bush, and uh, I found a place where the babbling was felt right for me, and and uh, I set my microphone down, and and uh, so I just wanted to get a nice soundscape of the babbling creek. So I walked away from the microphone so it could it could record in, in uh, quietness, and uh, so I was out of earshot of the microphone, and and I I just knelt down at the creek and I was just uh, playing with some pebbles in the water and kind of rearranging them and just killing time and just enjoying the the, the dawn and uh, the birds were just starting to, to uh, wake up and and uh, the creek was only about two two feet wide three feet wide at most and uh, I felt the the presence of something I felt like I was being watched you know that feeling you get? <laughs> and uh, so I, I glanced up, and lo and behold, from here to that tree mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. was a wolf staring at me. And he was big. And I was crouched down, and I froze in awe that, you know, first thing is you think a dog, and then, no, I'm out in the middle of a bush. There's no way that's a dog. And then I realized, no, no, that, that is definitely a wolf. And uh, he was looking at me, and he was across the creek. And so I froze in my tracks and just stayed there. And uh, he came closer toward the creek, but not toward me, kind of sidestepped me, knowing I was there. And so I got up, and I wanted to make myself big because I didn't really feel a threat. You know, I wasn't feeling threatened from him, but... I just wanted to make sure he knew I was there and, and uh, that I wasn't going to be prey, <laughs> right? Not that I think that they you would. might have been you know, vulnerable crouched yeah, over. Yeah, maybe vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. So um, my feeling is that wolves are not going to attack a, a person, uh, you know, who's just out walking. It's got to be some circumstances that really, you know, provoke that kind of a situation. Uh, you look up the number of times that, you know, man and wolf have had really bad encounters very far a few between right so anyways I stood up and the wolf jumped across the creek on the side that I was on he half glanced over at me and he continued to walk on up up a hill up a ridge and I turned around and and just in awe just watched him go up to the top of the hill and he stopped and at that point, I thought, okay, he's, he's at least 150 yards away from me. I'm, I'm in a safe distance now. So I gave out a howl just to, just to say hello. <laughs> and he turned and he looked. And all of a sudden he howled back and he went over the ridge and he was gone. <laughs> it was just an amazing encounter. Just amazing. I felt you know, so blessed and honored that, that I could experience that, right? So. Oh. I'll try to mm-hmm. do a little. I'll do a little. Uh, a little sure. hollow out there if you want. See if there's anything in the area. 
and uh, you never really know if there's going to be if there's going to be one within earshot and uh, but a number of times we've been very surprised. Do you, do you try and learn their calls? Uh, the, the particular pack here? Actually, actually I, I mm. that male alpha wolf that I told you about that had been around our, our place uh, so often that I had recorded so many times, I actually studied his calls and mimicked his pitches and stuff like that. And I've adapted that so much that that sort of becomes my wolf howl, my, my song. And uh, so I stick with that. Um, now, just for your listeners, in, in case they, they try to do wolf howls, um, try not to do wolf howls in uh, the spring. Uh, anytime after, you know, the end of February into March and April, uh, and even into parts of maybe May, uh, because the female wolf will have pups at that time. And if you howl, and the mother hears that, she may feel threatened that there's another wolf in the area uh, that they're not familiar with, and she'll actually take her pups out of the den and relocate them. So, you know, if you enjoy hearing the, the howls of the wolves, you're doing a disservice at that time of year by howling and then making the pack move on, right? So uh, in, the, in the spring, right through till about... I figure by by the first week of June, I'm mm -hmm. fairly safe that you know the pups are, mm -hmm. have been reared and they're out of the den now and they're they're able to move around on their own and and so mm -hmm. they're they're not as much of a threat if they do hear another wolf uh, mm -hmm. or a person howling like a wolf, you know. So, um, but the uh, the wolves really uh, they respond to frequency, um, and I think it's the frequency of the long note that, that triggers something inside of them that it, it, they're compelled. So do different um, alpha wolves hold that frequency at different pitches? Like yes. if that's kind of germane to that wolf? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I, would, um, I would say with my experience that, that I've, I've heard, um, the pitches that on different packs are different. The, uh, the male alpha wolf will have his own song. And... Um, that's how I think the rest of the pack identifies that, oh, this is, this is the alpha calling. They know his voice, right? And uh, I'm sure with their hearing and everything that their hearing is, you know, much more sensitive than ours. So they would be even more sensitive to those, uh, you know, rises and falls in, in the pitches, right? So mm -hmm. there may be two wolves that do sound similar because they speak the same, um, is it dialect or, mm -hmm. you know, that, that kind mm -hmm. of a thing. Um, but they they know the difference almost like when uh, you know somebody has an accent from a different region, right? So I think they're really tuned in to the to the voice, and that's why when they do hear an unfamiliar call, um, that is something that's okay. That we've got to be careful here because uh, you know it, the wolves are uh, competitive, and uh, sometimes there may be a, a lone male wolf come in to either invade a pack or or to uh, uh, try to curtail the numbers in breeding or, or try to breed with the, the females. Right, so, okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm going to call twice, and mm -hmm. that's after that, that's all I call. I only call two times, and uh, the once is my, hello, I'm here. The second time is uh, you know, kind of repeating that, to, that uh, in case they're 
in case they couldn't hear something, you know, that they're busy doing something, that the second call will, will catch their attention if the first one doesn't. And uh, in my mind, there's no point in doing a third call. So I'll see what I can do here. I'll just walk a few yards out into the, mm -hmm. onto the beaver dam here, out, out into the open where the, the sound will carry a bit more, and, and uh, we'll see what The white-throated sparrow. Do you hear that? Beautiful call. I love that call. Well, the squirrel answered you. <laughs> now that doesn't mean that they're not here. They just may choose not to answer. Do you find, um, what are some of the differences between uh, summer and winter as far as the soundscape goes uh, um, and what your ears get for, interested in? Uh, yeah, for wolves in particular, um, I've actually found it very difficult to get many howls in the winter and I have a feeling that um, it could be because of the deer yards that are around, uh, they know where the food is and they mm -hmm. kind of travel with it, right? So I think that has a lot to do with it. 
Um, and it could be because the snow is, is just so deep and, uh, you know, their food sources uh, may not be as plentiful as it would be in the spring, summer, and fall here. So they move on to, you know, know where they're going to get fed, right? So, and uh, they know the area that, you know, so well, as mm -hmm. I say, you know, a 200 kilometer range. Um, they, they know what spots are working for them and, and when, you know, that kind of a thing. Same with the rest of the wildlife. Uh, I've, I've come down to the pond some days, and all there is is well, like white noise. There's just absolutely nothing. It's just dead silence, and you'd, mm. you'd swear that, you know, everything is completely uh, gone to sleep, and, and everything is tucked in. And, but uh, just the same, it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's nice to hear that pristine quietness mm -hmm. to be able to, to record and, as I say, not hear the... The, well, the ravens become more... Yeah, uh, yeah, the ravens. Yeah, they uh, they do tend to clean, clean things up. They can spot, uh, they can spot uh, a morsel of food, and uh, they will go. Actually, there was a, there was a kill site just over here where I'm pointing across the pond, and in about maybe a hundred yards, and I think that kill site is actually what I was recording last fall. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, they had either just made the kill and then they were rendezvousing there at that point and, and uh, doing some howl uh, howling there. Um, but uh, Maureen and I, we walked over that way um, uh, just after, let me see now. Yeah, the snow had gone. Just after the snow had gone, we walked up and around and investigated and came across the kill site. And, you know, the, there was deer fur and, and there was bones and, and we found uh, uh, the rack and, and all that stuff. And, and uh, so there was, you know, that was from the wolves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a cycle of life, right? I mean, it's, some people think that it's, uh, it's too bad, you know, the deer had to meet its demise, but hey, it, it, it fed a, a family mm -hmm. and uh, it goes around. Yeah, when I'm, when I'm recording, when I, when I seek out areas, I'll often look at, the, at a map. Let's say if I'm, if I'm going to a, another location um, to record wolves or or uh, other habitat, I'll, I'll look at a, a contour map first. Mm -hmm. And that'll tell me w what kinds of hills are around and exactly where those hills are uh, in relation to each other. And um, in my mind, that equals ambience to me. I, I equate that to what is the ambience going to be like. Um, you'll get a much different picture, a uh, much different uh, soundscape with uh, flatland compared to if you have a couple of hills on either side and if you have a lake or something like that then that sound will reverberate uh, to the hillside and then back to the microphone and you know you'll get this wonderful ambience and uh, it's just so amazing to be able to hear some of those uh, that reverberation and uh, you know the echoes even that occur um, you know there's no need to to put uh, uh, simulated, you know, echo or, or reverb on the, on a lot of the soundscapes and that. I, like I said, I'm a purist in that way, so I like to try to, to get the ambience that I want from the location itself and not, not, incorpor not inject, you know, other simulated ambience into the, uh, into the soundscape. What, uh, what got you into recording nature sounds in the beginning? Well, 
I, I've been a musician since uh, I was a teen, and uh, I got into uh, recording my music uh, when I was you know, 25 or so. And then uh, from there, I started a recording studio, and we would, uh, we would record bands and do commercials and jingles for radio and TV. And uh, so audio was a big thing for me, and uh, being a producer and engineer. Um, and then when we... Uh, we had actually moved to the Perry Sound area, and I had a uh, uh, recording studio there for 20 years. And being so close to nature, um, when our boys had grown up, that left us a lot of free time. Uh, and I wasn't focusing, focusing as much on the studio and recording other bands. I was doing my own material, and that gave me time to be able to go out and canoe and hike more often. And it was right around that same time that the, uh, with the advent of portable mobile recorders uh, came along and uh, uh, like the Sony uh, Walkman, uh, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, and the handheld recorders, um, that just opened up a whole new world to me. I was, you know, amazed one day when, when I thought, oh, I'm going to take uh, this little handheld recorder, I'll take it with me in the canoe, I'll set it on, at the bow of the canoe, and I'll just paddle along and, and record some birds. And, and, uh, and I started to incorporate those sounds in, with my music, and uh, so I've created about 20 albums uh, that uh, some of them are just soundscapes, nature soundscapes, and others have uh, my music. Uh, interweaving, you know, with the soundscapes and so forth. So it was very much a, a natural progression for me with my love of nature uh, and then with, as I said, the portable mobile recorders uh, to be able to, you know, take those anywhere with you. Um, it's just opened up, you know, real, opened up doors for me. And uh, it allowed me to share my love of nature and to share locations that the average person would never be able to listen to because a lot of them were remote. I would hike for, you know, kilometers into into the bush. I would take my canoe and, and portage into some back lakes and, and then from there walk into the bush and, and uh, record camp overnight. And, uh, you know, it's something that most people just uh, don't get a chance to do. So, you know, bringing nature and the sounds of nature to uh, the average individual that appreciates those sounds, you know, mm -hmm. it's a, uh, it's a real, it's a love and a passion, very rewarding mm -hmm. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, when you were combining it with your music uh, in the same composition, would, what were some of the decisions that you make as far as what's the relationship of the music to the nature recording? That's a good question. Um, I tried to be very sensitive to first of all, what's what what is the um, what is the soundscape uh, content? What is it telling me? How do I feel from that? What's the feeling that I get? And it, it, you know, it, it'll be different if it's a, a two a.m. Uh, recording where there's uh, you know some some frogs in the pond and and maybe a distant wolf howl. That's different than. Um, say 6 a.m. when the birds are, are you know waking up and um, so those two feelings you know one is very serene and and whereas the morning soundscape is much more uh, celebratory it's a new day that kind of a thing so uh, one soundscape may uh, lend itself to a, a very subdued composition 
with long flowing notes and not very rhythmic, you know, just mm-hmm. very meditative. Uh, whereas uh, an early morning soundscape uh, with the birds waking up and all that, um, I find it allows me to, to add more rhythm and tempo into the music and, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, allow me to incorporate different instruments even. So the music comes kind of after you've experienced the place and did yes. the recording and you've yes. listened back to the recording. Absolutely, it does, yeah. Um, when I'm doing the soundscapes, the soundscape comes first and I don't even intend on putting music to that. I don't, at first, I'll listen to it and if it seems to facilitate, something moves me that I, I feel like, yeah, you know, this would work with some music. Um, and then it's, a, you know, okay, how does it make me feel and how am I going to, to go about uh, producing that? So, mm-hmm. um most of the most of the material that I, I do compose uh, for the nature soundscapes, um, number one, I like it to be uh, relaxing, um, and it may or may not have tempo depending on, as I said, what the you know what the soundscape is is uh, feeling like and what it tells me. Right. So, who are some of your heroes? Uh, Dan Gibson for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I listened to Dan Gibson as a boy. Um, you know, paddling the waters, and and uh, he would go out with his family into Algonquin Park, and and he would lug these giant you know batteries and and huge tape recorders and and all the gear with him, and uh, it, I just I found that just fascinating. That man, this guy is out camping, you know, in the woods, and he's got all this gear, and and then he's out in the canoe, and and uh, um, I just found that fascinating, and. Um, uh, uh, Bernie Krause is another one that uh, mm-hmm. I really enjoy his recordings. Uh, there are there are a few others uh, that I find um, just do amazing work, and they they kind of you know some of them approach it differently than others, and uh, but I I find that the uh, the soundscapes from all around the world. Right, like Bernie Krause, you know, going to Africa or down to South America, Australia, and and uh, recording these pristine soundscapes and just amazing recordings, very inspiring, and so that's yeah, very inspiring to me. And and here I am in you know North Central Ontario, able to able to uh, have all this uh, beauty and and nature around us. Um, it would be my my goal would be to. Uh, to incorporate these soundscapes uh, and, and share them, you know, with with others that maybe they're in Australia or maybe they're in Africa, right? And they they get to hear what it's like in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You really have stuck to one place. I think. Yeah. You, you consider Georgian Bay to Algonquin Park. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, I, we have gone to, uh, you know, Point Pelee, uh, down to the north shore of Lake Erie to catch the spring migration of uh, birds and recorded, uh, you know, the, uh, the migratory birds there because it's a main resting stop for them before they fan out as they go northward. So I felt that, you know, a nice concentrated effort. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, we found that really rewarding as well because we actually heard many birds that we don't hear around here, right? So around this particular location so uh but i mean this is very special you know here when you when you uh you you can hear the canadian geese and there's barred owls and and the wolves and and uh there's turkeys and and grouse and and the 
all the different types of frogs. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy is hearing the spring peepers in the spring. Uh, as soon as the snow is gone, the pond starts to thaw out, and you can tell when it's spring by the day, you know, to the day, because that's when suddenly you start hearing the peepers, spring peepers come out, and uh, next thing you know, within a week or so, it's a cacophony. You know, it's just so, so many spring peepers. And I find that that wave, uh, it comes, it peaks, and then as it subsides, some new frogs, uh, you'll hear the American toad calling quite a bit. And, and then when they subside, there's the gray tree frogs, and they will kind of take over, right? And then around the same time, um, you, you hear the owls and, and uh, you know, all the different uh, wildlife waking up. The other thing I find interesting uh, in recording is, is uh, when you hear the frequencies, the actual um, uh, frequency of the sounds of the calls, the spring peeper frogs actually are very close to the same sound as the bird calls. But the spring peeper frogs, often they come out in the evening when the birds start dying down. And then as the frogs die down in the morning, in the dawn, the birds take over. So it's like one takes that frequency spectrum uh, while the other one is sleeping kind of a thing, right? And and, yeah. uh, and vice versa. Communal broadcast channel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't step on your frequency as long as you don't step on mine. <laughs> and um, owl calls. I've noticed owl calls are very similar to loon calls, the frequencies. Mm -hmm. And likewise, when you hear uh, a loon call on a lake at a distance, that call can often sound like a distant howling wolf. And sometimes I wonder if uh, the owl call or, and or a loon call can sometimes trigger a pack of wolves to call because they, as I was saying earlier on, different. I think that they hear that frequency and they're compelled to, you know, to give a howl out when that frequency, uh, it, it must resonate with them so much that they, it, it's a, a knee jerk response kind of mm -hmm. a thing. And uh, I could, you know, uh, it, that's just my feeling that, uh, you know, sometimes when you do hear that distant loon call, that that frequency is very similar to a, to a, a wolf howling. Mm -hmm. So. Well, as you heard uh, in my visit with Glenn Hubert, uh, we didn't get a chance to dialogue with the wolves, but we did hear some really nice uh, white-throated sparrow calls. You can learn more about Glenn Hubert at gmhcafe.ca. And don't forget to explore the World Listening Day events at worldlisteningproject.org. Thanks for listening. This has been Making Waves, a monthly show about sound art produced by New Adventures in Sound Art for WGXC Wave Farm. <laughs>